Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will look at the first part of The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by uh, Mark Twain. Um, this will be the first of four episodes, which will wrap up with this series of novels we've been doing, which are uh, the Library of America categorizes as his historical romances. Um, and yeah, this is a great book. Um, you should really check it out, I think. Um, I think this is one of those works by Mark Twain that's going to maybe fall through the cracks if you're not uh, seeking out to be a completionist. It's um, a bit weird, and it was originally, uh, well, it was originally published not under Mark Twain's name, even. Um, he didn't, uh, I think the publishers didn't realize that it would sell or, or, or didn't believe it would be by him. Or It's not his style, right? It's not a comedy. There's not humor in it. There's not, um, it really, there's almost no jokes at all in in the story it's really a love letter to Joan of Arc it's one of the f it, he wrote it at a time before many Americans were, were were much aware of this history where it wasn't a very popular tale um, it was published in 1896 uh, originally so that's 14 years before he died so it's quite late in his career um, and it's after like one of his daughters died so his description of Joan of Arc actually comes from um, his his daughter that Susie Susie Clemens um, actually two of his daughters died quite quite young um, this was uh, one of them Susie uh, Susie Clemens died in 1896 which is the same year that this this um, book came out um, so it was published really in Harper's serialized um, in 1895 um, and it would finally be published in a book I think a year later um, so he thought it'd be taken more seriously if he would publish it anonymously, but it, you know, it, it got out pretty quick that this was Mark Twain. Uh, apparently he collected the primary sources for this while he was in Europe. And we'll talk about that in the, in future episodes. Uh, the next series actually will do his later travel log writings. Um, and those, he spent a lot of time in Europe and it's during that period that he got, became aware of the Joan of Arc, uh, history and he became really fascinated buy it um and it's hard not to be uh joan of arc is just one of those people that is she's just really amazing she doesn't seem to fit what we would expect of of young people in general but particularly young women at that point in history um of course from a modern eye it's even more amazing right because modernity Tended in the West, in East Asia, and even even in the Middle East, I think saw a decline in women's status. And then after the 19th and 20th century, it started to rise up again. And of course, this is written at a time when the women's movement was quite strong. But modernity saw a sharp decline in women's status. Reread, uh, did women have a renaissance? For kind of an introduction to that that argument. But if, if you look, you know, as states got stronger, as war engulfed the world as you had capitalism emerging that tended to marketization that tended to see a decrease in women's status in the middle ages there was more flexibility for for women so she's slightly less amazing if you actually historicize her in the time but doesn't make her any less objectively astounding as a person um largely out of her youth but even her her um her gender 
certainly is going to make it hard not to be impressed uh, by her. Now, the, the story is written as if kind of like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court in that it's kind of a translation of, a, well, that's not a translation, but like an old document that's in this case being translated by Sieur Louis de Comte, uh, who is uh, the page of Joan of Arc, about her age, I, mean, I think a year or two older than her, you know, writing at the end of his life about uh, about the events of uh, the end of Joan of Arc's life the last few years, uh, the important ones, the ones that we remember. Um, now, this is a historical novel. It's novelized, but it's heavily based on primary sources. So you could read this for the history, and, and I think you're, it's fine that way. Um, in fact, I think many people do read this, seeing it basically as, as a lightly fictionalized historical account. And certainly when we get to the end of the book, to the trial and martyrdom, that's coming right off the pages of the primary sources. I think even like the language on here. Um, now, speaking of the language, uh, I talked a lot about in Connecticut Yankee, how there's a, like anachronisms throughout the book, you know, with the type of armor they're using, the language they're using, things like that. He just runs with that for the for the story. But this, I think Mark Twain's making a, an effort to actually sound like people from the time, uh, even though he's a modern writer. He's not, he still has them anachronisms here um, that we would expect. Uh, some, there are a few Americanisms th thrown throughout, but I think he's really trying to take this seriously. And I, I think that's pretty clear that he is. Um, so the story uh, basically is in three books. First in, in Domine, uh, which is her birthplace. Uh, basically, this is dealing with her youth, her growing up, her character, uh, her, her visions, and the trauma inflicted on the community by the English um, occupation of northern France. During this time, this is after the Battle of Agincourt, of course, when uh, an, an unjust peace is forced on the French that would have basically led to the unification of the French and English uh, monarchies. Um, and I remember reading somewhere that, like, up until the French Revolution, the English, like, standards would have the little fear de lis because they still claimed the French throne from this, this peace treaty. But of course, the French eventually, you know, push them out, push out the English in large part due to the achievements of Joan of Arc. But anyways, the first part's about her youth, uh, the the trauma of being occupied, the difficulties, the dreams of, of victory, her visions, her religious character. There's a lot about a lot of vignettes kind of establishing her as an amazing woman, young woman. Book two, uh, which we'll get into a little bit in this episode, is called In Court in Camp, um, and that deals with her uh, arrival to um, to meet the king, her audience with the king, her, her journey to them with her supporters. That's, that's actually where the first 100 pages more or less ends, with the audience with the king. Then we have her, her victories, um, her, you know, her her successes on the field. And then the last part of the book, which we'll get to in the, in the last two episodes in the series, deal with the trial of Joan of Arc, which is, of course, is the most well-documented part of her life. Um, so um, let, me, let me think broadly about what this book can mean to us and why I think it's so important for us. Um, I'll start with a quote here from very early in the book. 
Joan of Arc, a mere child in years, ignorant, unlettered, a poor village girl, unknown and without influence, found a great nation lying in chains, helpless, hopeless, under an alien domination. Its treasury bankrupt, its soldiers disheartened and dispersed, all spirit torpid, all courage dead in the hearts of the people through long years of foreign and domestic outrage and oppression. Their king cowed, resigned to its fate in preparing to fly the country. And she laid her hand upon this nation, this corpse, and it rose and followed her, unquote. So this is a young person. Now remember, Mark Twain writes a lot about young people. He had his Prince and the Pauper, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer. Um, it's very much on his mind, like the agency of young people, the agency of youth. Um, a famous book about American childhood is called Huck's Raft. So I think it's not too much of a leap to say that Twain is being one of the few vocal spokespeople of youth. So much so that historians writing about childhood today think about Huck when they do that. Um, but I think they should also think about Joan of Arc, even though she's not an American. Um, it's an American who like, really brings this story to English-speaking audiences. Um, and, of course, there would be many histories later. I don't know what the English were saying about Joan of Arc at the time. I presume the narrative is quite different. Um, maybe an American can see the story a little more objectively than someone from, from England. So let's talk about that first, um, this youth stuff. Um, I'm actually quite moved by this book. Uh, Joan's Dilemma and Challenges, Parallel Challenges Young People Are Facing Today, given a world that they did not create, given a world that's on its back in many ways, a system that's fracturing. Um, and lacking a vision for itself. And and so, I mean, I hate to do this, but, you know, because I'm basically a boomer. Born in 77, but I'm close enough. Um, and, you know, if I haven't acted by now, I'm not going to. So it's like, oh, the young will save us. The youth will save us. It's really unfortunate we're, we, we do that. Um, but it might be the situation we're in. Um, but then Joan of Arc is the savior of her people, but she's made to suffer for her deeds, of course. Um, and if you see how young activists are sometimes treated in our own time, um, Greta Thunberg, for instance, or others, um, there is a anxiety about young people stepping up and, and taking leadership. Um, now, Joan's followers didn't have that anxiety, but but I think it's, you know, there's something going, some, something really special about what she did, and I can't explain it, and I don't know if many people can, but it is maybe a once in a once in a millennium kind of event or, or, or change in his, historical fortunes. But she, she's made to pay for it. Our young people are made to pay for the world that they didn't inherit, in, or they inherited that they didn't create as well. Crushing debt, vapid democracy, ecological catastrophe, growing inequality, um, dying culture um it's quite a mess to clean up um and i don't know who's going to be our joan of arc it probably won't be just one person or it may not happen right they don't owe us shit they don't owe we don't you know they don't owe us anything because we didn't give them a world worthy of, of saving if they do it, it'll be for themselves um in fact our narrator here is a young person too of, of joan's generation Probably the best thing we can do is just step out of the way. Um, 
Now, you know, other writers have touched on on gen this generational divide. I think Philip Dick, who I've said a lot about in the past, has had this intense fear of geranitocracy. Um, you got Hawthorne, who seems to think that creative energy and potential existed in children. He wrote children's stories, of course. Um, Mark Twain seems to believe the same. Um, he creates so many examples of creative, courageous children alongside odious and cowardly adults. It's like a trope. It's like the Mark Twain trope in many ways. Um, so I, I really think the solution has to be kind of like deferring leadership to, to younger people. Um, but in the old, have to sort of step out of the way, give the resources to the younger generations to, to deal with this. Um, I guess that's, that's, my, that's like the political claim, I think, of this book. Um, but the solution is not the repression of elders. It's actually liberation, right? The empowerment of youth and through that, liberating the world with new visions. And that's happened before in history. There's been other moments, the greatest generation. Um, I grew up there, all the old people around, but at the time they were remaking the world and, and resting it free from the, the people who held it, right? Through war and depression and, and struggle. Um, we're not making it easy though, like burdening young people with debt, with gr grotesque inequality, generational inequality, um, all those kinds of things. These aren't a problems Joan of Arc faced, but she did face a world that was occupied and enslaved. Um, so I think that's what's kind of inspiring about this book for me is her ability to inspire others, her courage, her rhetoric, and her, her vision for something different. She, she is kind of a grander version of Huck Finn. And Huck Finn kind of is, is ends up coming to the conclusion when faced with moral questions of opting out. But um, that's not good enough. And, and Joan of Arc couldn't have just opted. I mean, she could have opted out. She could have took her visions and, and moved into a cave or moved into a monastery or something. In fact, um, that, you know, there might be a universe where that's what, that's what she did with her visions. But she didn't. She decided to to act um so this novel so the f the first part covers joan's upbringing in domrene as i said her emergence as a victorious general that we'll, we'll say more about in the next episode i think um you know the victory at orleans um the rallying of the french king and the nobility and the populace of france to the war effort um now, he writes about this later in the book. No other girl in all of history has ever reached such summit of glory as Joan of Arc reached that day, speaking of the Siege of Orleans. And do you think it turned her head and that she sat up to enjoy that delicious music of homage and applause? No, another girl would have done that, but not this one. This was the greatest heart and simplest that ever beat. Um, he certainly believed that Joan of Arc was one of the most impressive people in human history. And maybe she is. She might really be that. Um, it, it, you know, it, it often comes off as exaggerated in the book if you take it just on face value, but that's, it's deserved. I think he's authentic in his praise of that. He really does think this about this, this, this historical figure. 
Um, so he starts the novel with some discussion of the children of the village, the little commune she grew up on, um, the world that created Joan. These children were already cultivating uh, like a religious culture that's distinct from those of adults. She plays a role in connecting the intellectual courage of children with the piety of mature religion. Mark Twain writes, all the children pleaded for the fairies and said that they were the good friends and dear to them and never did them any harm. But the priest would not listen and said it was a sin and shame to have such friends. Her first moment of courage comes in her confrontation with the theology of the priest class in this way. And then at the end of book one of this, where before she sets off on her military campaign, she has to stand up against the legal authority when um, the paladin, a character in the story, who ends up following her, claims that they're engaged to marry and she has to defend herself and, and claim her independence from the religious and secular authority of her town before she can reach out. It, it's like really a, you, you blink if you miss, if you blink you might miss it, but it's such a crucial moment in her, her development and it comes right at the end of book one. Um, so even not given the rest of the story, she's an impressive figure in the local history. But it was the sight of the dead and mutilated men, the devastation in her town that motivates her to adulthood and action. Quote, it was a bloody and dreadful sight. Hardly any of us young people had ever seen a man before who had lost his life by violence. So this cadaver had an awful fascination for us. We cannot take our eyes off of it. I mean, it has that sort of fascination for all but one. And that was Joan. So she turned the from this horror, not to flee, but to action. And she mobilizes the young people of the town. Um, now, it's easy for Mark Twain, this old man, to, to do what I'm doing, you know, another old person, to say, you know, young people come and save us from ourselves. Um, but before that, we have to have this religious and political transformation, which is also described in detail in this, this book. Um, a significant role of Joan of Arc is the conquest of cynicism, conquest of defeatism, because everyone around her, at least the adults around her, all say the, the war's over. Agincourt ended it. 6,000 British, English long longbowmen killed 30,000 knights. All right. That number 30,000 we saw in Connecticut Yankee, too. Um, where does that courage come from? Does it come from her visions? Does it come from her upbringing? It's just that he's just amazed that such courage was possible in young people, in a young person. Um, even though he'd been writing about courageous young people before, whether it's Huck in the cave, not Huck, uh, Tom Sawyer in the cave, or, or Huck Finn in his moments of moral courage. Um, she, you know, he, Joan also has a triumph over the narrow human expectations about the source of value. She faced ridicule early in her campaign. Um, and she overcomes that. She overcomes the, the ridicule, the treachery of, of adults. So very much this theme we see in his other works of adults treating young people with disdain, discarding them and, and treating them, you know, seeing them as, as something in the way of their crude ambitions. Joan has to face that and overcome all that. But usually, maybe nine times out of 10 or more, adults creating that ridicule prevent people from speaking and creating and being who they are. And we do that. We, we, we literally do this every day with kids at school, teach them that they have to raise their hand to speak 
and they have to wait their turn and they have to follow the rubrics that we create for them. I'm doing this now. I mean, I'm teaching this stuff now and, and rubrics are useful tools, but we are saying this is what you need for an A and students do that. It does silence them. And, um, you know, my, my favorite students are the ones who, who transcend the rubrics and assignments I create for them. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not a, I haven't thought much about Joan of Arc. Um, you know, I come across her sometimes teaching or whatever. But this is the second time I've read this book. And it really does. Like, it's just amazing how this person even, even exists. Um, but it's an argument for the empowerment of youth. Uh, a group that needs to be much freer needs to be taken seriously. That's the, maybe the key thing lesson here is Joan of Arc had to be taken seriously by the adults around her. If we're going to like confront these, these historical moments and the historical moment we're in. Um, I think I'm going to just leave it at that. There's other things we could probably talk about like prayer and religion. Um, um, Maybe let's let's think a little bit more about Mark Twain. I suppose um, it's actually reading the Wikipedia on this. It's it's kind of shocking how, at the time, the book was well received. Um, but this is what Wikipedia says: Twentieth-century critics have not favored recollections, and it's hard to read or acknowledge it in the mainstream today. It's hardly read or acknowledged in the mainstream today, especially compared to Twain's comedic works, such as Huckleberry Finn, Putting Him Wilson, and Tom Sawyer. In his preface to the play St. Joan, iconoclast literary critic George Bernard Shaw accused Twain of being infatuated with Joan of Arc. Fair enough. I, I see that too. But maybe it's a justified infatuation. Um, Twain is pretty sparing in his praise of people. Um, so when he has it, it's probably well-deserved. Uh, right, they write here, Shaw says that Twain romanticizes the story of Joan, reproducing a legend that the English deliberately rigged the trial to find her guilty of witchcraft and heresy. Um, but maybe that's really what happened, right? Um, American author and historian Bernard DeVoto is critical of Joan of Arc, calling it mawkish, claiming Twain was uncomfortable with the demons of tragedy, formalizing whatever could not be sentimentalized. Um, Another person, Harris here, um, expresses befuddlement at this work's placement in Twain's body of works. By the time, quote, by the time Twain is writing recollections, he's not a believer. He's an anti-Catholic. And he doesn't like the French, so he writes a book about French Catholic martyr. Obstensibly, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, that's written in 1914, the riddle of Twain's passion for Joan of Arc. Um, yeah, it's a riddle if you look at it through those lens. It's not a riddle if you look at it from the from the lens of someone who is, um, in his old age, taking seriously what he has written before about young people and saying we need to sort of liberate them and, and give them the leadership. Um, so, anyways, that's my introduction to this book. Um, I don't think my episodes here are going to be the longest because, you know, I don't want to necessarily get in, especially in the next episode, I don't want to get in the nitty gritty of the military campaigns and all, and all that. But I, I want to return to this theme of, of why Mark Twain was so fascinated with Joan of Arc. Um, but yeah, let's, let me know what you think. It, is Wikipedia right that none of you read this book and no one out there is probably very aware of it? 
Uh, hopefully not, because it's definitely one worth reading. I would uh, put this on top of your list if you haven't got around to it yet. It's really amazing. So uh, thanks for living, listening, and I will. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.